Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to Tuesday. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on the 16th of May. Just a reminder that we're on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. If you go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, you'll find all the links to your favourite podcast apps. The programme also has a Facebook page, Peter Lewis Money Talk, and I'm on Twitter at moneytalkr 3 And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has reaffirmed June the 1st as the so-called X date when the US Treasury could run out of money and default on its obligations. She told Congress in a letter that waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt limit can cause serious harm to businesses and consumer confidence, raise short-term borrowing costs for taxpayers and negatively impact the credit rating of the United States. The warning comes as the White House and congressional leaders prepare to resume debt ceiling talks later today. Financial markets in Turkey have plunged after it looks increasingly likely that President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's unorthodox policies could continue into a third decade. The election will go to a runoff in two weeks' time after neither President Erdogan nor opposition rivals exceeded 50% of the vote. Turkey's benchmark BIST 100 index slid 6.1%, with the banking sub-index down almost 10%. The lira remained near a record low, and the cost of five-year credit default swaps to protect against a default on Turkish debt rose by the most in more than two years. In Thailand, the two main pro-democracy opposition parties have agreed to form a coalition. Move Forward is projected to have won 151 constituency seats and 39% of the votes for the party list, while Per Thai, led by ousted former Prime Minister Takshin Shinawatra's daughter, is projected to have 141 seats and 29% of the votes. Move Forward leader, former tech executive Peter Limjuonrat, told reporters that he extended invitations to five parties to form the next government to try and oust the military-backed government that has ruled for almost a decade. And China's northbound Swap Connect scheme launched on Monday in Hong Kong. It will link Hong Kong and mainland China's $5 trillion interest rate swap markets and help global investors to participate in the mainland interbank financial derivatives market and hedge risk on Chinese bonds. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft, Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense, and from the USA, Tony Nash, founder, CEO and chief economist at Complete Intelligence. Tech stocks led the advance on Wall Street on Monday on hopes that interest rates have peaked while the broader market lagged after the latest economic figures indicated the US economy was slowing. Data from the New York Fed showed its index measuring manufacturing in New York State plunged from 10.8 in April to minus 31.8 in May, far below economists' forecasts of minus 3.8. Traders were also hoping for a breakthrough between the White House and Republicans in Congress over talks to avoid an unprecedented debt default. The broader S&P 500 index traded a third of a percent higher to 4,136. The Dow snapped a five-day losing streak, gaining 48 points or 0.1% to 33,349. The tech-heavy Nasdaq outperformed, rising 0.7% to 12,365. Regional banks rebounded, with the KBW Regional Banking Index jumping 3%. 
Shares of Microsoft were up 0.1%. Earlier yesterday, EU regulators approved Microsoft's $69 billion purchase of Call of Duty publisher Activision Blizzard despite the deal being blocked by UK competition authorities. The European Commission said Microsoft had addressed their concerns on competition issues. Chinese markets staged an afternoon rally yesterday. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose 344 points, or 1.8%, to 19,971. Uh, on the mainland, the Shanghai Composites rose 1.2% to 3,311, and futures markets are pointing to gains of about 0.9% at the open. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Asian fund management industry consultant and our regular Tuesday commentator, Stuart Allcroft. Morning, Stuart. Good morning, Peter. And also with us from the US is uh, Tony Nash, who is the founder and CEO and chief economist at Complete Intelligence. Welcome, Tony. Hi, Peter. Welcome. All right. Thank you. <laughs> and also here in the studio with me, we have Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Um, let's start with uh, these U.S. debt ceiling uh, negotiations. President Joe Biden is expected to host top congressional leaders on Tuesday for debt ceiling talks. They were postponed this week from Friday. Over the weekend, Janet Yellen told the Wall Street Journal that the Biden administration and congressional Republicans are making progress in their negotiations over federal spending and raising the debt limit. Ms. Yellen warned that the USA could become unable to pay its bills as soon as June the 1st if Congress doesn't first raise the debt ceiling, leading to economic catastrophe. And yesterday, she reaffirmed that date as the earliest the U.S. could default uh, on its debt. Um, Tony, let's start with you over in the U.S. because you're you're on the spot there. Um, Can we be optimistic that maybe something's going to be resolved here? President Biden seems to be quite optimistic, but House Leader uh, Mick McCarthy was uh, was rather negative in some of his comments yesterday. Yeah, I think we're at a point where we're not going to get something as quickly as we think we're going to get something. Uh, We're at the stage just for kind of the last minute brinksmanship uh, starts. So the U.S. debt ceiling is an annual event, pretty much annual event here in the U.S., where both parties threaten to cut programs from the other. Um, The party in power um, wants to defend their spending and the party out of power wants to cut spending. Mm-hmm. And in America, it's just a normal course of events. And Yellen speaking and say, saying June 1 was the X date um, doesn't necessarily align with things that we've heard in recent weeks. Um, if it is the X date, which I don't think it is, um, you know, I think that could be, uh, it could be a ploy because what we've seen in the past at times is, uh, let's say June 1 is the X date, then we see the Fed, federal government close things like national parks mm-hmm. just in time for summer holidays. We see them close, you know, very visible parts of the federal government while other parts of the government continue running. So it's all about how it looks um, and it's about embarrassing the other party as we move into an election cycle. That's simply that's simply all the debt ceiling is about. At the end of the day, the U.S. is going to spend more. At the end of the day, the politicians are going to spend more. 
Um, there aren't going to be really any cuts. Um, they'll push the cuts off to future years so that the politicians in office now don't have to deal with it. So this is really just a lot of drama. Markets will react <laughs> because people who are not familiar with it will react. Um, but in truth, this is really just we're probably going to have probably three to four weeks more of drama. So it sounds like then from from what we've seen in the past, that even if we do get to this X date, whatever day it is, um, the US isn't going to suddenly default on its debts because it will prioritise no. other things, won't it? It'll make sure it can still pay uh, the interest and redeem US treasuries. There'll be other no. things happening first, like employees being furloughed. So although it'll have an effect yeah. on them, it's not necessarily going to be a financial markets crisis. No, it's not going to be a financial markets crisis or it shouldn't be a financial markets crisis. And employees may get a week or two or three weeks off of work, but they'll be paid for all of that time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, federal employees right now are planning on having a holiday. That's mm. really what's what's <laughs> happening is they're planning on having a couple of weeks off. So, you know, that's the that's really the only downside for federal employees. So I know that outside of the U.S., this is, you know, I, I think this is probably looked at as being really strange if you're outside of the U.S. But in the U.S., it's just it just uh, is an illustration of the divisiveness of politics here, which most Americans, quite frankly, are really tired of. Mm -hmm. uh, and it shows the extremes to which the political parties feel they need to go in order to um, uh, satisfy some constituency. Uh, and that's really all it is. Here in the U.S., most people are not, are not the least bit nervous about it. Stuart, it certainly does look strange to us, doesn't it, when we look from here? But Peter, one of the things I would be a little bit concerned about here is that yeah, they, might, they might be able to get to some agreement. But I think this is going to be a rehearsal for next year. Next year is an election year for the next president. Absolutely. And uh, I think that if, um, if they can find weaknesses, if the Republican Party can find weaknesses in the Democrat position, then they will do that and then um, try to force uh, it into a position where when they come to do the same thing next year, there will be a problem. And the problem could go on for much longer next year rather than for this year. It, it, it's easy for the Republicans to, to say, well, OK, we'll give up now, but we won't give up uh, really because next year is going to be your big problem. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, overall, as, as um, Tony was saying earlier, it's it's an annual annual event that's uh, sparring. This just this year, they seem to have um, you know heightened it a little bit by bringing forward the date to start talking. Hmm. But is it a, is it really a big problem? I mean, when you look at um, when you look at U.S. debt, it's about what a hundred percent of GDP. So that sounds sort of you know, pretty horrendous. But then when you look at, say, Japan, it's what, 260% of GDP, China's debts, national debt, 300% of GDP. Is it really a huge problem? Well, no, I think, I mean, I think the only problem here is the system that the Americans have chosen to, uh, chosen to adopt. I mean, it's something that every country has to go through. They're large numbers, but I mean, every country goes through this and they just have different systems for, 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 for agreeing it at the end of the day. I mean, the only other ones in the world used to be Denmark, which I still think operates the same system, and, and Australia, and they decided to change theirs because it was too confrontational. Um, so realistically, I think the US should look at changing the system by which they, they, they deal with this uh, to remove it from the agenda. 
But there, there seems to be, Stuart, something different about it all this time, doesn't it? There seems to be some more strident voices um, over in Congress that are, that are sort of really digging in. And I suppose the fear is that um, we could get to the point where um, the US has no choice but to default. And then presumably that's going to have some big financial market consequences. Oh, I don't think the US is going to get to a point where it no. will default. I think that's the last thing it wants to do and the last thing the, the rest of the world wanted to do. I think it'll just be lots of noise and sabre-rattling and um, and eventually some sort of agreement will arise. But it's this... Um, it, it, I think for the rest of the world, we are bemused by the way in which the sabre-rattling goes on. And it's not the first year that it's happened. It's, it seems to happen mm. most years. And it, Although this year is a little bit worse than it was last year, but um, two or three years ago, I remember it was uh, uh, it went beyond the the, the um, deadline dates, and and there were closures all over the place. Can I just you know say here how how this is supposed to happen and how this used to happen until I don't know ten or so years ago? The president is supposed to propose a budget to Congress. Congress is supposed to vote on that budget. And then and, and Congress then debates the budget and votes on the budget. And then those funds are appropriated. OK, presidents haven't submitted budgets for a decade or more. Uh, and the U.S. budget has basically been passed through a continuing resolution. And so this this debate we're having right now is really about this really stupid continuous resolution because the presidents of the last decade have not done their job and proposed a deficit or a budget, I'm sorry, to Congress. So this is the way things should happen. But presidents have not proposed budgets because they don't want to be seen to not be proposing budgets in certain ways. They want to just go along and continue to expand spending from the U.S., which is which is just them not really fulfilling their duty. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, you know, as, as Tony said there, I mean, I think the thing this year is, uh, because it's an election year next year, you know, neither party will want to see, will want to be seen as to being taking this too far. So, you know, they both got a vested interest in, in coming to an agreement. But uh, as Tony says, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a historic arrangement. And that's the problem. And they need to, need to, really need to address that. Mm. Okay, well, let's switch our attention to a totally different region, to Thailand, not a, not a country we talk about a lot on this show, but nevertheless, they've just had their general election. 99% of the votes have been counted and the pro-democracy opposition parties move forward and the per Thai party, which means four Thais, have emerged as the biggest winners. Uh, they've promised to form a coalition to try and oust the military-backed um, government. But Stuart, this could be a problem, couldn't it? It's, it's not as simple as that in Thailand. No, the military have been in charge for quite a long time now. They don't like the idea of um, anybody else running the country and... Uh, and now the rest of the country are now saying they don't like the military running it. Mm. So, um, and, and, and the fact that there's a, a scion of the um, Shinawatra family also involved in the potential new government, that also is like a red rag to a bull with, with the army in Thailand. What, what I always think is pretty amazing about Thailand, though, is that the economy seems to thrive whether there's a military government or a, or mm. a civilian government. Mm. And, um, you know, there hasn't, unlike mo most countries around the world where military coups occur, this doesn't seem to slow down the Thai economy at all. Um, 
But what it, what I think will be quite intriguing is that um, the the um, Move Forward uh, Party in Thailand has indicated that it wants to make fundamental changes to many aspects of the Thai constitution, including making changes to the role of the of, of the um, the royal family there. Mm. And that I think you know that has always been sacrosanct as far as. Thailand is concerned, and the fact that they are willing to talk publicly about wanting to make changes and then winning the largest proportion of votes suggests that, that maybe the general public do want to see some changes, um, and, and that certainly seems to be the case. I think that um, over the next few weeks, uh, it's certainly going to be um, probably a lot of negotiation going on. Um, what will survive, hopefully, will be some form of um, acceptance that the democracy process worked and that um, the, the, the Thai people will get the government they want. And on that GDP figure that you mentioned, we did get economic data out yesterday from Thailand. Thailand's GDP advanced 2.7% in the first quarter, accelerating from 1.4% growth in the fourth quarter of 2022. Um, Andrew, this does seem significant, doesn't it, this this election, in that there's going to have to be some changes. But the problem is the Senate, which effectively has a veto um, on the government, has never ever voted for anything other than a military-backed um, government. So the, the odds are stacked really in favour of the incumbent government. And that's that I think is what, uh, as, as Stuart's alluding to there, is that is that's what the, the public really want to see changed. Um, and it will take a, you know, it'll, it'll you've still got the risk that even after you make these changes, the military decides to have another coup uh, and take back control again. And uh, that's just the, the, the fact that um, you know, you've got such a, a groundswell of support for change um, is encouraging. But as you say, you know, everybody in the Senate is, is military picked. So mm. they, they have a, you know, their alliance is well known. And so this is one of the reasons that I think they're looking for such a broad coalition so that no one party, party can be singled out as being an opponent to the, to the crown or to the realm there. Um, it it's really is a representation of the people. Tony, what's the, the sort of the geopolitical significance of this, and in particular in terms of Thailand and Southeast Asia's um, relationship with, with the US? I mean, the US is obviously trying to develop um, stronger ties um, with the region, and presumably it will have something to say um, if the current incumbent government doesn't follow the will of the people. Well, the U.S. is is trying to rotate its manufacturing out of China, and Thailand is obviously a, a big part of that. Um, and so, you know, I think stability in Thailand is a um, is helpful for U.S. businesses who either want part of their supply chains or their own entities uh, in Thailand. Uh, and so, you know, I think Thailand has been remarkably stable, even. You know, even through the toxin era um, and all the, you know, instability there. Um, I mean, I say instability, but I think to most foreigners, it didn't really look unstable. Um, you know, the the investment was was remarkably stable, and so I don't think anybody wants. Um, uh, I don't even think Thai people want you know too much trouble in Thailand, um, but certainly the U.S. wants to find places like Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam where they can de-risk from their concentration in China. 
And um, in terms of relationships with the US, does uh, the US see Thailand as a, a strategic ally in maybe the same way oh, that absolutely. it does? Yeah, it has been for you know 50 years or longer. So mm. yes, the US absolutely sees Thailand as a very strategic ally. Um, as does the EU as well, I would point out. You know, mm. So you know, uh, Thailand is an ally of most Western nations, uh, and that's, that is uh, very much part of why the stability of the country has been maintained, I think, even through the military rulership. Stuart, what, what does this mean for investors? If we get a period maybe of, of stability, um, I, the, the markets yesterday were a little bit um, uncertain about this, but presumably we could get a period of stability if, if all goes well and, and you know, the government accepts uh, the opposition parties uh, take, taking power. Would it make Thailand a, a good investment um, opportunity? Well, I, I think if your listeners are... Um looking for a, a hot tip to say, here's a market that's going to <laughs> bounce up massively as a result of change of government, I, I think they're going to be a little bit disappointed, to be honest, because the Thai market has performed with or without the military government and doesn't seem to be affected too much by it. Mm. If what happens as a result of the new government, we see further growth in the GDP and uh, a further opening up the market, because there are a number of restrictions, nevertheless, um, then that will be received positively. But I, I think uh, Thailand has been quite a favourite over the years with many emerging market investors. Um, it hasn't ever uh, escaped properly the emerging market um, name, but it is, it is no longer really an emerging market. It, is, it emerged quite a while ago. Mm. It, it's a, 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 I think many people around the world fail to realize just how big Thailand is as a country, how big it is as, a G, as its GDP. And I, I, I know when I talk to um, people in Europe and America, they are staggered by the size of Thailand. They think of it as being quite a small country. But uh, you know, Bangkok is one, one, top one of the l three largest cities in the world, 25 million people population, uh, just in Bangkok. So you, know, you have, to, have to bear in mind that this is a country that has been growing and growing and growing, even through uh, COVID. So it's, um, it's a very positive place from an investment perspective. Andrew, from a, a long-term perspective, um, Thai markets, do you see them as a, as a good investment? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think as, as Stuart's saying there, they, the, the country has made a lot of progress in improving its infrastructure. I mean, years ago, we used to get regular fund, uh, flooding. Now they've looked to uh, improve the, uh, the infrastructure as far as that's concerned. They've put in power. They've put in good sites. They've made the country very, very investable as far as moving production there is concerned. And I think, uh, as Stuart's saying, I mean, it's actually probably one of the advantages of having a, you know, a military dictatorship effect is that they can just push things through. Uh, the fact that they've done that in a positive way, um, I think, is encouraging. Mm. And, of course, tourism, that's a big part of Thailand's GDP, about 12% of, uh, of the nation's economy. Again, presumably, if we have some stability, that's always good for tourists, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, I think one of the things, as, as, as Stuart mentioned, that you know, during COVID, they were one of the first people to open up Phuket, even mm. on a sort of sandbox basis, to, to try out whether or not they could keep that uh, 
economic part of their economy, the, the, the tourism going during the COVID crisis, and, that, and they managed to do that. And that's made it, you know, that's kept it on people's radar screens. And I think that's one of the things that Hong Kong will, will have to, uh, you know, fight against is the fact that people have just stopped coming here. It's not been on the, on the agenda. It's not been possible to get here. It was expensive if you did come here. Uh, and hence people have looked at other places and now those other places will become their regular haunts rather than Hong Kong, unfortunately. Mm. So what would be the priority for, for the new government in terms of maybe economic, financial um, initiatives? What, what's it got to do? I don't think it's got to do an awful lot. I, I mean, it's just got to say, you know, we are still open for business. There is a change. I mean, a lot of the changes that they're pushing for are constitutional changes rather than economic changes. And the fact that the economy is doing well, I don't think they'll really look to interfere with that. They'll look to try and un enhance it. But they are looking for those constitutional changes. They don't want the overhang of the threat of the army coming back in and disrupting things. Mm. Tony? I agree with you, Andrew. I think that that's um, exactly what they want. It's a sort of steady as you go, as she goes in the economy, and and let's try and um, amend some of the domestic items that don't affect the rest of the world. Tony, we've got President Biden coming out to the region um, at the end of this week, or, or we think anyway, depending upon how these debt negotiation discussions go, but he's due to attend the G7 leaders meeting uh, in Hiroshima in, J in Japan. Um, what are his priorities when he comes out here? Presumably China is going to be one of his big focuses. Oh, absolutely. But I think also making sure that um, uh, the Japanese relationship is very much underscored um, uh, we had guests from Korea in D.C. Uh, two weeks ago, so that relationship is secure. At least that's the feeling. Um, but also, you know, making sure that um, that the U.S. is seen as holding um, uh, holding strong against China in certain ways. Uh, it's um, uh, China's incursions into Taiwan. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, will also underscore uh, the technology embargo it has against China right now, which is very uh, inconvenient for China. So I think there are a number of things, but underscoring the importance of relationships in Asia is really critical for Biden right now. So I presume he's pleased about the, uh, the rapprochement between South Korea and Japan, that, that they're now getting on much better and seem to have opened dialogue yeah, sure. once again. For sure. Um, absolutely. And, you know, those two allies are critical in the U.S.'s discussions. with China. Mm. Of course, they're not directly involved, but having them on side. Um, you know, if you look eastward from China, you see, uh, you know, a line of U.S. allies break in that line of U.S. allies. Uh, then it could make the U.S.'s negotiating position much more difficult. Mm. So, Stuart, what, what should we expect from this G7 meeting? Talk about trying to resist what uh, the U.S. says is economic coercion um, from, from China. Uh, to be honest, I don't think we're going to get very much out of the next G7 meeting. There's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're out of COVID. We're beginning <laughs> to start to see economic growth. Everything is beginning to improve. Um, I, I'm not sure that I expect very much to occur, frankly. Um, the fact that uh, there is a geopolitical overhang remains there, and I think that we'll be continued talk about Russia-Ukraine war, and um, of course, the, we've already just had it about the U.S.-China 
difficulties. But uh, I, I, I don't think G7 is going to be able to do very much about any of these things at the moment. Yeah, no, I think I think Stuart's right there. I think the it, it's going to be a lot of talking. Um, it's interesting. I think that China's sent its envoy to Ukraine and Russia to start that process, but you know they're 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 still in a very awkward position about being the peacemaker there, and, and there's still a lot of um, effort that the rest of the G7 will put to try and put pressure on China to change that tack. But the reality is, as in all of these things, China only changes its mind when it suits China. Mm. And we got uh, key economic data coming out uh, later today. We got retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investment. Presumably a lot of focus is going to be on comparing these numbers with a year ago when China was in a pretty dire situation. So I suppose the numbers have got to be better, haven't they, than where they were one year ago, but also a lot of focus on what is the consumer doing. Yes, I mean, I think... Yeah, and, and anybody who announces numbers in that circumstance will look like a hero, won't they? <laughs> well, I, th- I think the people will look, look much more at the monthly the numbers. Is that we all, you know, those that um, know and understand what they're... What they're t- listening to will will know that um, it's just recovery from COVID, recovery mm-hmm. from bad times, and it's not the importance of the difference between this year and last year. It's how it's the trend and it's the and, and what else is going on around it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the monthly trend is the most important thing that people will look at because this time last year, you know, Shanghai was in lockdown and that was, mm. you know, devastating. I think the other one that people will be looking very carefully at is, is obviously unemployment because, you know, China has a problem in creating employment because it's it's stepped on and, and curtailed the education sector, it's curtailed e-commerce and to an extent, even Macau, and we're seeing a you know a good rebound in Macau from the the recent numbers and Golden Week, but it's it's creating larger jobs going forward that China's really going to have a problem with. Mm. And presumably, youth unemployment—almost one in five people under the age of twenty-six, I think it is—is is, is unemployed. That's a big problem, isn't it? It's a big problem, and, and we're just about to get another another whole batch of graduates coming out. And historically, fifty percent of those would have gone into the education sector. That's mm. not going to happen now because of the the curtailment there. So yes, I think you know it, it's got a big problem there, and I think you're seeing that, and it'll be why retail sales will be uh, watched closely because in in China, I think. From my experience, the consumer tends to be very binary. If they're confident, they will go out and spend. If they're not, they just stop spending and just re- revert to essentials. And I think we've already seen that trend you know, occurring in the last couple of months. Mm. Tony, what stood out from the first quarter earnings season, or well, one of the things that stood out, is the number of US and European companies that are talking about China and the impact of China um, on their earnings. We've seen it from Disney, Starbucks in Europe, from LVMH and Richemont. Um, it's coming up more and more, isn't it, in terms of either whether these companies have overestimated the rebound in China, which certainly in some cases they have, or whether, um, as some other companies are, like Richemont, for example, in the luxury goods area, are seeing a pickup up in Chinese demand. Right. Of course, luxury goods have done very well, but I think many firms overestimated uh, the impact of opening in China and they claimed it in their earnings and they suffered for it. So, um, you know, the, I, I think if the Q1 number looks too good, um, people will be suspect. So I think from the, from the NBS perspective, they really have to be careful with the number that comes out because <laughs> foreign companies are are not uh, supporting a good number because that's not what they've put out to their um, to their shareholders. Mm. 
Stuart, is, um, is, is China still open to business for foreign companies? We've seen a lot of crackdowns recently, haven't we? And now a new one on the consulting sector as well. It says, the government officials say, you know, we want foreign companies to come here, in particular US companies. Um, but then you see these latest set of crackdowns, which put foreign investors off. Yes, it's, this, uh, this is one of the confusing bits about China. China is very definitely open to global companies going there, setting up and doing business in certain sectors. Uh, it, there are restrictions in sectors, such as in the financial services area. Um, but nevertheless, China still wants people to go there, but it wants people to, but it makes um, companies think hard about making that decision. They, they want them to go there and be very committed to setting up and, and, and not sort of mess around with it. They want them to be willing to spend money. They're, they're looking for larger companies rather than smaller companies to go and set up there, for mm. example. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 Whether it's manufacturing or in, in, to, in the intellectual areas, they're, they're willing to look at everybody to come in there. But you've got to play by Chinese rules. You can't play by Western rules. And uh, Chinese rules are often very different to Western rules when when uh, managing and running a business in China. In China, yeah, I mean, I think I think Stuart's very right there. I mean, it, it's it's you've got to operate on Chinese rules, and I think for that reason, a lot of companies are changing their strategy as, as far as China is concerned, and making it very much more looking at the domestic market uh, ne- rather than necessarily just as a manufacturing base for global exports. And of course, if you look at it that way, then China's export market is again going to suffer. You know, people aren't going to put as much manufacturing into China as maybe they would have done uh, historically. Tony, final word to you. When when companies look at what's going on in China and see these latest crackdowns on U.S. consultancy firms, is it putting American firms off from going to China and investing in China? Oh yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for your thoughts there. <laughs> Short and sweet, but that's how that's how we like it. That was Tony Nash, who's the founder and CEO and chief economist at Complete Intelligence. You also heard Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asian Market Sense, and our regular Tuesday commentator, Asian fund management industry consultant, Stuart Aldcroft. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Capital Preservation Specialist for Individuals, Enzio von Farrell, and Louisa Falk, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith, who is Japan Strategist at CLSA. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 